Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. The bison, or buffalo as they're sometimes called, once dominated the landscape of the Canadian prairies. For thousands upon thousands of years, they roamed the prairies in numbers... Well, we'll get to the numbers. So why don't we have all these bison roaming across the highways and farms today? Well, that's what this episode is all about. First, let's get one thing out of the way. The word bison comes from the Latin word for wild ox, and likely means stinking animal, referencing bison bulls during the breeding season. Why do we call them buffalo, though? There are no buffalo native to North America, with buffalo actually being in Africa and Asia. When Europeans began to arrive in North America, they saw the bison resembling the buffalo of those regions and likely transferred the name. Another idea is that the French word for ox is boeuf, which would become buffalo through English speakers. I will be using bison and buffalo interchangeably in this episode, so let's go back, way back in time. The first bison arrived from eastern Siberia about 195 to 135,000 years ago, and the second wave came from the steppe bison of Asia around 14,000 to 11,000 years ago. There are two types of bison, the wood bison and the plains bison. Plains bison are the smallest bison to have ever lived, with males and females measuring in between 440 and 740 kilograms. Wood bison are the largest living bison, weighing between 540 kilograms and 880 kilograms. Wood bison mostly dominated from Alaska down through the Yukon, Northwest Territories and into northern British Columbia, Alberta, and Saskatchewan. Plain bisons covered much of the continental United States from the Appalachian Mountains to the Rocky Mountains and throughout southern Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. In this episode, I'm focusing on the plains bison. The indigenous people relied heavily on the bison of the plains for many different things. The bison, or buffalo hunt, was an important aspect of living on the plains for indigenous people. Hunting methods varied by the nations and where they were located. Some indigenous would cloak themselves in wolf skin and mimic cries of a bison calf to get within range to shoot the bison with an arrow. Buffalo corrals were also used in which bison were corralled into a large area where they'd be killed in large numbers. Another very popular method was the buffalo jump, and the most famous buffalo jump of them all was head smashed in buffalo jump. The buffalo jump, which is located just west of Fort McLeod, Alberta, had been used by the indigenous people for about 5,500 years. The cliff was 36 feet high, and the Blackfoot would drive the buffalo from the Porcupine Hills, 3 kilometers away, towards the jump in a path lined by hundreds of rock cairns, with the indigenous dressed as wolves and coyotes. Those who dressed up were young men trained in animal behavior to guide the buffalo into the lanes. At full gallop, the buffalo would run off the cliff, breaking their legs at the bottom, allowing them to be killed by those at the bottom of the jump. The bone deposits at the base are 39 feet deep, showing the extensive use of the site for thousands of years. The last buffalo jump was sometime in the mid-1800s, and today it is a World UNESCO Heritage Site. The indigenous people would use the carcass for everything from tools made of bone to hide to be used in dwellings and clothing. 
In addition, the huge amount of meat allowed for a more leisurely time, which would allow the people to pursue artistic and spiritual interests, which allowed for them to be a more culturally complex society. According to legend, the name comes from the tale of a young Blackfoot who wanted to watch the buffalo plunge over the cliff, but he was buried underneath the fallen buffalo, and when he was found, he was dead under the carcasses with his head smashed in. In 1991, Linda Eaglespeaker spoke with the program Wonderstruck about the use of the site by her ancestors. Let's go out here to the cliff. We're going to see where the buffalo actually went over. Linda Eaglespeaker is a Blackfoot Indian and an interpreter at Head Smashed In. She explains what buffalo jumps were all about. The view that we're looking at right here, we're looking into what we call the gathering basin, where the buffalo would have gathered by the thousands. Our main job is to gather those buffalo together, drive them over the cliff. Young men dressed up in animal hides that imitate the sounds of animals, like a wolf or a coyote, will go out. And they will go out right into the herd. Instinctively, the herd will split to get away from the coyote or the wolf. The buffalo that are closest to the kill site, driveline system, they will be portioned off this way. The rest chase back in the valley. We don't need them. Then another boy will come out, and he will go close to the herd as he possibly can. He is imitating the sound of a buffalo calf, calling the buffalo towards the drive lines. They will surround that baby calf and protect it. Your young boy will crouch out, and he'll sneak over the next little hill, and he'll imitate that sound over and over and over again. Our driveline system is like a funnel. The smallest point at the edge of the cliff, the widest point out into the hills. And the driveline system is made up of piles of rocks, maybe some dried buffalo chips, maybe some dried twigs, fresh boughs, if they could find them. Behind each one of these rocks would be a human being, dressed in a buffalo robe, crouched down. Once the buffalo have come by, your job is to come from behind the rock and wave your robe as best that you can so the buffalo won't come back. The buffalo are stampeding down through the driveline system. The buffalo see what we are looking at, continuous rolling plain, a place to escape. Because of their eyesight, they cannot see great distances away. They will continue running, looking for that escape. Down through the driveline system, they will come over the edge of the cliff, but it is too late. They cannot stop. They are front heavy. They will continue over the cliff and land down below. The indigenous people in the buffalo continued this pattern of hunting and balance for thousands of years. Then the Europeans arrived, and everything changed. Now, in 1800, there were 30 million bison on the Great Plains, and it was estimated that if all the bison on the plains were lined up, they would circle the world 1.3 times. Things began to change as soon as the horse was introduced to North America in the 1730s. Within four decades, the indigenous people were using horses extensively, and this allowed the First Nations people to lance and shoot the bison at a closer range, thereby speeding up the rate of the bison hunt. The population also began to decline as fur traders with the Hudson's Bay Company and Northwest Company arrived. They needed meat, and the bison were an excellent source of it on long trips through the West on expeditions. Several other factors began to contribute to the decline by this point, one was the development of a new high tanning process in Europe that created a huge need for leather. Since Europe could not supply this demand, the vast herds of bison in North America were used instead. The strong hides of the bison were perfect for this new tanning process, and many hides were turned into items like belts. New rifles also came into play on the bison hunt. 
The Sharps rifle allowed a bison to be killed with just one shot from a long distance. This allowed hunters to kill bison to the number each day only dictated by how many their crew could skin. From the 1810s to the 1870s, the bison were also a main source of income and survival for the Métis people. The Métis would use the bison in all sorts of clothing and the meat for themselves or for trading. The Métis would conduct two hunts a year, once in the spring and once in the summer, and sometimes the hunting parties would number over 2,000 people. Bison hunters rode horses and were known as buffalo runners. Hunting took a great deal of skill and many Métis would go on to become successful ranchers and cowboys thanks to the skills they learned on the buffalo hunt. The Métis women would follow the hunt with carts, and once a bison was taken down, the hunter would leave a glove as a token on the buffalo. The women would then gather the carcass and prepare it to make pemmican, a vital resource for fur traders, and something that would lead to a war between the Hudson's Bay Company and Northwest Company in the 1810s. And you can learn all about that in my episode on the Northwest Company. The first business venture ever in southern Manitoba was the Manitoba Buffalo Wool Company, which was created in 1820 and involved a factory where hide and hair from bison were utilized and tanned. The first shipment of bison products came from this company and reached England in 1822. The Métis people quickly realized how important the bison was, and in 1840 they codified this protection in the Laws of the Hunt, also known as the Laws of the Prairies. This set of laws dictated that there could be no hunting of bison on the Sabbath. It also enforced rules related to running and patrolling, and clear punishments were dictated for anyone who broke the rules. Many blame the loss of the bison on the concept of the tragedy of the commons, not capitalism. The tragedy of the commons is a situation with a shared resource system where independent users can act in their own self-interest and behave contrary to the common good of all users. Since the bison were communal property and not private property, as a result, the population was abused and squandered for short-term goals that created long-term problems. In 1860, the price for buffalo skins was about 8 to 10 shillings. Fresh buffalo meat was 3 pence and buffalo tongues was 1 pence. By 1875, buffalo robes were selling for 6 to 10 dollars each. In that year, 2,500 buffalo robes were shipped out of Manitoba alone. Hides were taken, but the carcasses were left to rot. In addition, many hunters would also poison the carcasses with strychnine in order to kill wolves that came to feed. Wolf skins were also valuable, and this was a terrible method of killing two birds with one stone. But it wasn't just individuals. Governments got involved in the decline as well, and on purpose. The American military shot mass herds of bison, since they were the main source of food for the indigenous people, in an attempt to force them to rely on the government and be pushed to reserves. The Canadian government wasn't innocent either. Prime Minister John A. Macdonald forced indigenous off their land to allow for European settlement and this was done through the rapid decline of the bison. This made the indigenous dependent on cows as food and that food could only be given if they were on reserves. As a result of this, the plains bison in Canada were wiped out and eventually only a few hundred remained in North America. At one point, bison could circle the globe, they were so plentiful, but by the 1880s the number of bison on earth couldn't even circle a city block. The decline was incredibly quick. Reverend John McDougall stated he estimated herds were half a million when he saw them in Manitoba in 1873. In 1875, a police officer traveling from Fort McLeod to Fort Cuapel claimed he was never out of sight of the herds. But by 1880, they were gone. The sheer amount of export of bison products was staggering. In 1873, 
50,000 buffalo robes were shipped out of Canada alone. From this point, as herds began to get smaller, 30,000 robes were shipped out in 1877, 12,797 in 1878, and only 5,764 in 1879. On the American side of the border, it was estimated that 2.5 million buffalo were being killed every year. In 1876, the Winnipeg Free Press was warning people to ensure they had a good supply of buffalo robes as the extermination of the bison was predicted to happen within the next 12 to 14 years. Isaac Cowie of Winnipeg would compile a report on the bison in 1912, and he would state that the last bison hunt he could find any evidence of was in July of 1888 in the valley of the Red Deer River between Edmonton and Calgary. Only five animals were killed. It was at this time that Charles Alloway, a cowboy of the truest sense came into the picture. He would relate how he helped save the buffalo in 1920, saying, As railways began to be built across the United States, contractors hired hunters to supply buffalo meat for the workers, and this marked the beginning of the end of the great beasts. It was back in 1873 I conceived of the idea that the day was dawning when the vast herds would be depleted. I had bought as many as 21,000 buffalo hides from a single group of hunters, paying $3 on average and $4 for large ones. It didn't take any higher mathematics to realize that this rate of killing them couldn't go on forever, especially as they were dozens of groups out hunting at a time. Alloway began to round up any buffalo he could find, and he had cows to sustain any calves he found. Doing this would help to save the species from extinction. By 1878, his small herd had grown to 13 purebred and 3 crossbreed bison. By 1888, the herd was over 100. Thankfully, a few hundred were saved in time, and all plain bison today come from those individuals. In 1907, Canada was able to gather 700 plains bison from Montana and ship them to Elk Island National Park in Alberta. A small herd was also taken to Banff National Park, where there was a display herd for 100 years. A new wild population was introduced in February of 2017, and for the first time since 1883, wild bison calves were born at the park. The following audio comes from a video from Parks Canada about releasing bison into the wild in the Banff area. My name is Carson Hoyer. I'm the Bison Reintroduction Project Manager for Banff National Park. My job is to orchestrate all the different moving parts of trying to get bison from Elk Island National Park into Banff National Park. Parks Canada's primary mandate is to ensure what we call ecological integrity, which means the health of the ecosystem. And because something's been missing, North America's largest land mammal, part of our job is to try to bring it back. And that's, that's what this is all about. It's about that effort. From about noon today, until hopefully about noon tomorrow, so a 24-hour period, we're actually going to do an operation that has a lot of different moving parts. Uh, the first part is actually bringing the animals through the Elk Island corral system and the chute system to give them a tranquilizer and then do some last-minute changes to ear tagging. And then we'll start to load them in groups of three and four through the chute system up the loading ramp into the containers that we've modified. They're basically sea cans or shipping containers with ventilation in them and a few additions to the doors. And then we'll truck them for 400 kilometers. That'll then take us to the end of the gravel road, Yaha Tinder Ranch. And then we'll actually bring a helicopter in tomorrow, a heavy lift helicopter that's come in from the coast. And that'll pluck each individual crate off the flatbed trucks. It's one by one 
over the ridge about 20 kilometers into the heart of the reintroduction zone where we have a, a pasture fenced where we're going to hold them for the next 16 months, feed them, support them, allow them to calve safely twice and then do the release after they've anchored to that landscape and have adopted it as their new home. so much research, there's been so much consultation, like literally years. We've got everything in place that we could have possibly thought of. And really, uh, from here on in, it's gonna be up to the animals. You know, we're talking about giving a species a second chance. The seed that we are planting today, you can't almost imagine what it might lead to in 50 or 100 years. Due to the conservation efforts and the rebuilding of the species through breeding, there are roughly 350 to 400,000 bison in North America, mostly on farms and ranches, and there's around 1,500 to 2,000 plains bison that live in conservation herds in Canada. It's a far cry from what they once were, but at least we saved the species from extinction. Information comes from Wikipedia, the Canadian Encyclopedia, CBC, the Indigenous Peoples Atlas of Canada, and Tales of Early Manitoba. I hope you enjoyed this look at the decline of the buffalo, and if you did, please consider giving a rating and review. You can reach me at CanadianHistoryX, that's E-H-X, at gmail.com, and you can support the podcast at patreon.com slash that's B-A-I-R-D-O. Thank you, and we'll see you again next time.